It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Brunch is a good look for you. Did you have a rough day, Agent Fury? I'm gonna need clarification on this space invasion. Scrolls are infiltrating your planet. They're shapeshifters. Okay, prove you're not a scroll. That's a photon blast. And? A scroll cannot do that. I'm just supposed to take your word for that. Hello, and welcome to another Slate spoiler special podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and today we will be spoiling Captain Marvel, the latest installment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, starring Brie Larson as the first, well, not the first female Marvel superhero, but the first to have a movie centered around her. Uh, Here to talk with me about the movie are Slate's tech editor, Jonathan Fisher. Hello, John. Uh, Hi, how are you? You're joining us from D.C.? Uh, Yes, I am. And here with me in Slate's Brooklyn studio is Slate assistant editor, Marissa Martinelli. Hi, Marissa. Hi, Dana. So as per usual, before we get into spoiling the story itself, I'm just going to do a quick going around the table and get your your reactions. Um, in a few seconds, did you like Captain Marvel or not, Marissa? Uh, should we say Captain Marvel? Um, <laughs> did I like it? Did I not like it? I, I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, I think I was a little disappointed for the first standalone female superhero movie, but I wonder if maybe my expectations were too high. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get there. All right. What about you, John? I liked it with reservations. I thought it... Uh, I thought there was a goofy, better movie inside this movie, but um, but overall, I, I found it pretty satisfying. You would have preferred more goofiness. Yes. All right. Well, I, I, I already reviewed it, so I won't get into my responses at length. But yeah, I would say in general, uh, if you're a Marvel person and you're a completist and you want to know what part Brie Larson's character is going to play in the next and final movie in at least this first giant Wagnerian cycle of Marvel movies, then you should see this. But I'm not sure if you came at it from completely outside that universe, if I would recommend seeing it, because it's kind of formulaic. Um, But let's get into the story itself and talk about a couple things at once. I want to talk about this movie, of course, and also, you know, the emergence of Brie Larson into this cinematic universe, but also where we are in this cycle and what's going to happen next. John, you can sort of address that as our resident comic book specialist, Um, but I'm interested to hear what is going to happen after Avengers Endgame, which is coming out in only two months, which will feature this character and all the other characters we know so well by now, and how they're going to sort of recycle that into the next iteration. Uh, all right, so let's start off at wherever we are at the beginning of this movie. There's a lot of temporal and geographical and cosmic dislocation in this movie. The protagonist doesn't always know who she is or where she is or why she is there, and the audience is kind of mixed up in that, I think, in a in an interesting way sometimes in that temporal dislocation. But let's start off with where we first find her and who we first know her as. Um, John, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, the movie starts, um, it starts on a faraway planet uh, called Hala. Um, We learn pretty quickly that it's the seat of the Kree Empire. And uh, we're sort of thrown right in right right into uh, this setting. But we, we, you know, pretty quickly figure out that Veers, the character played by Brie Larson, uh, as we meet her, is some kind of, you know, elite soldier 
who, you know, is part of some a kind of fighting force that's led by a Jude Law character. His character is Jan Rog. But basically, very quickly, um, you know, it, it becomes clear that the Brie Larson's character doesn't know who she is. She is very powerful. She somehow uh, ended up on this planet. Um, she's been training with Jude Law. And she believes she is a Cree at the beginning of the movie, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, she, she believes that she's a Cree. And, and, and quickly, we, you know, we know that they're about to be sent on a mission and he is, uh, you know, cautioning her to uh, suppress her emotions, to, uh, to focus on the mission. The Cree the, the society, I think we, we quickly figure out, is a sort of um, high-tech utopian empire led by an art- artificial intelligence. You know, everybody gets an audience with this artificial, with the supreme intelligence, and in the case of Brie Larson, the supreme intelligence takes the form of uh, Annette Benning. And, uh, you know, after, after, after basically some setup in which it's established that she doesn't know who she is, she's very powerful, she is some sort of elite fighter, um, very quickly they leave that planet. She and a team of, of I guess, elite Kree warriors go on a, a mission to rescue uh, a spy who is on another planet that is occupied by the scrolls. And the scrolls are the, uh, we are told early on, are the enemies of, of the Kree. Quick question. Have we seen the scrolls before in the MCU? They have appeared before, correct? Or is it only the Kree who have? Well, they could be anyone. So. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe all the good guys were scrolls all along. Uh, no, they have not been in, as far as, I, as far as I know, I mean, at this point, there's 22 films and a bunch of, TV shows, but as far as I know, they haven't shown up before. Um, and actually, they're they're a fairly major, you know, uh, group of Marvel villains from the comic book. So in that sense, it's kind of momentous. But they haven't shown up. The Kree have shown up in the uh, the first Guardians of the Galaxy film. Um, the villain of that movie was, um, uh, God, was it Ronan the Accuser? Uh, Played by, by Lee, Lee Pace, right? right? That guy, the, yeah. Right, right. So, and yeah, uh, so he shows up in, in this film, too, in a, in a, a, a small appearance, um, but we've but we've been, we've sort of gotten a glimpse of that society before. So they find themselves fighting the scroll, who are, are for the first good two thirds of the movie are seen as the bad guys, as the invading force, and as we'll see that that shifts partway into the movie. But help me remember. So she has that fight, but how does she end up on Earth? Let's get her through the roof of Blockbuster Video, the Los Angeles Blockbuster Video that she falls through uh, in, I guess, 1995 is the, the where the Earth part of the movie is set. Um, it, does she go there because Jude Law sends her? Is that right? No, actually, what happens is at first she's kidnapped during a recovery mission. I was a little bit confused during the scene, which I guess is the nature of having shapeshifters as your bad guy in the movie, where it's revealed that they're actually, they've been set up. So uh, Jude Law, Brie Larson, Veers, and Jan Rog, I should say, uh, lead their team to this planet. And then in a scene that I found very, very dark and hard to follow because of the lighting and because of the shapeshifters, uh, there are all these allegiances that are shifting because they're there to recover a spy, but they've been set up and Brie Larson is kidnapped and her memory is probed to oh, find right. yes, yes. Some, a memory that she actually is not even conscious of. I mean, we see at the beginning of the movie, she has this dream that wakes her up where she sees a glimpse of Annette Benning in what we recognize as Earth with some sort of odd alien-like vehicles around and structures. And then it turns out that the scroll are very interested in these memories, and they are looking for specifically coordinates from whatever this unknown moment in her past was. 
Right. And we see fragments of her childhood, which I want to take like a brief interpretive detour through the fragments of her childhood that we see, uh, not just in that scene, but in others as well. Um, the, the little flashbacks that you get to the childhood of Carol Danvers, who, of course, turns out to be the Earth person who has been, you know, sort of brainwashed into becoming veers on the planet Hala, which, by the way, all I can picture is that the surface of the planet is like braided and yeasty. <laughs> <laughs> they ju- I love that they just truncated her name as well to make Carol Danvers into veers. Right. And, and that's a big reveal. Vers, but that's kind of an awful name too. Anyway, the stuff that she remembers from her past is it, it, it's sort of the first moment that anything like feminism enters into the movie because it seems like her big traumatic backstory on Earth is just that you know she was was not permitted to do things because she was a girl, right? I mean, there, her 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 childhood trauma seems to be basically that you know her father tried to keep her from participating in any athletic or physical activities that she was this fiercely competitive kid who was always trying to do stuff and that everybody was saying you can't do it because you're a girl. And that extended to, we find out later in her life when she wanted to join the Air Force, uh, but she was not, she was kept out because she was a woman. I love these flashback scenes because they are so on the nose and heavy handed. There's one scene where she's racing, I think it's go-karts, and one of the other boys says something like, you're going too fast, slow down, or you have to go slow. Uh, And then she immediately crashes. And sort of the idea is that you know, she's being held back, but also like she did need to slow down. <laughs> she crashed. Well, but I I enjoy that, that there's a montage really late in the movie. Now we're kind of jumping ahead spoiler wise, but where you see her throughout different ages of her life. So a little kid, an older kid, a teenager, then Brie Larson getting up from having fallen down. And it is super corny. But at that point, I, I was kind of I was sort of cheering her on. I love the idea that, you know, she's she she was this kid who made mistakes and kept on getting up again. All right. So let's let's get her through. She's she's been now kidnapped and sent by the scrolls, if I'm correct, through the blockbuster video roof. She pops up in 1995 in full Cree armor and is intercepted by Samuel John, you want to take Jackson? This one? <laughs> young Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, let's talk about D-age young Samuel, Samuel L. Jackson. L. Jackson. Yes, exactly. Digitally youthened Samuel L. Jackson, who is of course Nick Fury from the whole Avengers series. And this is something that I liked about this movie is that it's really the first time we've gotten to see Nick Fury do anything except just uh, get the gang together and bark out orders about what they need to do. He's He has always just been exposition man who sort of shows up to explain what the mission is and maybe pops back up at the end again. But you know, we don't know anything about his backstory. We don't exactly learn about his backstory here, but at least we get to see a different version of, of Nick Fury, one who doesn't know at the beginning of the movie that superheroes exist at all. <laughs> well, and also I was mesmerized by the digital magic they worked to make him look younger. Samuel L. Jackson, of course, is always a very energetic actor, but he's 70 years old, and to see him kind of spackled so that his face is less lined, and he in this movie he has two eyes, where famously in all the later movies he wears an eye patch. Uh, it, was, it was really fun to watch him get a chance to do some real acting as opposed to sort of standing on the sidelines. Yeah, I agree. Um, wh- but it was there was something un- uncanny, too, about the facial. I mean, it was well done, so well done that it was just almost strange. It probably took me 20 minutes into the movie before I could get used to the idea that that was just his character and not sort of think about what had been airbrushed out. Yeah, this is this is a technology that um, a bunch of, of these movies and other superhero movies and other movies have, have done. But um, I think a famous example about ten years ago was um, was it ten years ago? What was the third X Men movie where um, uh, Patrick Stewart was de-aged for like one scene? I think this is the first movie where it's where it's basically been done for the entire film. 
It made me think about all the movies, pretty recent movies, that had really horrible age makeup, usually in the other direction, trying to age a younger actor. For example, J. Edgar, the movie in which Leonardo DiCaprio played uh, J. Edgar Hoover. I just remember that Army Hammer, who played his kind of partner boyfriend, had this horrible, horrible age makeup that just looked like, it sort of looked like the Scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz, like a bag had just been placed over his head. And it made me think, oh, if only that technology had existed back then, that movie might have been more watchable. So in addition to the youthened Nick Fury, she also meets up with a slightly youthened version of Agent Coulson, who's a fan favorite in this series, who was killed off many movies ago, but who we now get to see popping back up in slightly more youthful form. Although Clark Gregg, the actor who plays him, essentially looks has looked exactly the same since he was probably 20. So it's not as it's not as remarkable. Yeah, I think around the time this movie was set, uh, he was I think he was a, a small character in The West Wing and, and or I guess a few years later and uh, basically looked the same. And now he has his own spinoff show, right? He, Clark Gregg has his own Agents right. of S.H.I.E.L.D., right? I mean, I, th- I think at this point, um, you know, the very quickly, Nick Fury, you know, finds a reason to go rogue and help uh, Veers, you know, figure out what she's doing on Earth. Um, you know, almost the second that they meet, they're ambushed by by some scrolls who, who sort of try to snipe them from a distance. And that leads to... Um, a much more visible action scene, uh, a, a chase sequence in which uh, Veers fights a scroll on a on a subway train while Nick Fury is pursuing, and then also finds out that um, that uh, Coulson has been replaced by a scroll, which will then you know sort of uh, convince him that this is you know they're aliens. Uh, holy crap! I should I should do something. Um, I, I actually thought that that was uh, I thought it was a pretty thrilling chase sequence, and I think that was when I started to really buy the film. I thought the beginning didn't quite work, and then it began to click for me, I guess, uh, once she fell through the the, the blockbuster and in the minutes after. Yeah, and part of the reason why, I think, is that there's some kind of good buddy comedy that develops between her and Samuel L. Jackson, right, as they spend this crazy day together where he goes from being, you know, a normal earthling who doesn't think that aliens are taking over the world to one who realizes that that is happening. And uh, and there's just kind of a, there's some funny stuff that happens between them on, on that journey. There's some fun fish out of water moments, too, for viewers being in 1995 Los Angeles. But when she first lands, a few people comment that she's dressed for paintball and she gets a lot of odd looks when she's on the train. Uh, and that sequence I thought was fun in that it was sort of your standard action sequence in a contained space, which Marvel's kind of known for at this point. But there was also the question of who her enemies were, because with the shapeshifter element, sometimes it's, you know, a sweet looking old lady. Sometimes it's a guy in a business suit. And the idea of not knowing whether it's just a casual human seeing a strange person on the train or if it's a scroll in disguise made for a little more surprise. Yeah, which was used effectively in the trailer, I remember, with people asking, why is Brie Larson punching out an old lady? (laughs) Because out of context, it's impossible to make any sense of it. The official website for this movie is actually a 1990s style Comic Sans, very simple website. And I was checking it out, and it's fun because it fit with the 90s theme, but also the old lady pops out occasionally. Uh, I'm surprised that she was such a standout character in this movie for marketing. (laughs) Yeah. Do you guys think, I don't want to take us too far away from the plot, but did you guys think that the, um, the all the 90s humor, and I can't believe we're now talking about 90s humor, um, but did you think uh, the film overplayed that or it was uh, kind of a, a treat? I mean, a couple of the jokes were pretty funny. It probably was a little bit overplayed. I, I sort of did feel like we get it by the third dial-up modem joke. But the one scene where they're all waiting for a file to load and it's taking an incredibly long time <laughs> was kind of funny. It was just nicely timed. And I will say that I love the soundtrack. I mean, you've got Nirvana's Come As You Are playing at one point, right? Whole celebrity skin. I can't remember what the no other doubt. brunch anthems were. Yeah. So confession, I'm actually a 90s baby. And I really loved some of the nostalgia 
just from the angle of, you know, online, it's sort of like this this era where everyone has a strong childhood attachment to. And whereas something like Thor as a fish out of water movie had him navigating, you know, modern Earth, um, I thought this was kind of more fun in that it was also sort of like a blast to the past for the audience as well. Yeah, I, I actually could have done with more playfulness, not necessarily all in the 90s joke vein, but, you know, just a little bit more playing with the goofiness of having this woman in crazy armor show up. Um, where would you guys place this in terms of, of tone? I mean, John, you were saying you could have used more goofiness, but it, it's not, you know, we wouldn't want Guardians of the Galaxy level because this isn't sort of like a spoof of superhero movies. And then the fact that she is this lone, you know, female superheroine who has this quest to save the galaxy does at times give it some of the, uh, I don't know, I would call it the more stoic, noble, self-serious Marvel side that, say, the Captain America movies sometimes have. Um, what do you think? Did, do you, did you think that that level of playfulness worked? or? I think it was a six and it should have been like a nine uh, on the, the goofiness scale. I guess it felt sort of almost like half-heartedly pensive and stoic, you know, and sometimes a little bit, you know, spacey. That dream sequence that we talked about earlier was um, it almost had the look of like a Terrence Malick film, except um, there was Ben Mendelsohn's like sort of hilarious narration um, uh, interrupting it. And then elsewhere, I think it just it, like it, it was fun and it was silly and it was cartoonish in a way that like felt it could have been a lot more of those things. Um, I'm thinking of like. Uh, the cat jokes, and it's possible that was a very divisive cat. But um, oh yeah, <laughs> we gotta get cat. to the cat. We definitely. Yeah. In fact, let's just jump ahead to the cat. Like this movie chops everything up, and I'm gonna chop it up too because there's two or three more things I definitely want to hit on, and one of them is the cat. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So he's this sort of cute mascot, which isn't a thing that we've had I guess Groot in the in the Guardians of the Galaxy mm. movies, but like I said, those are in a different you know tone category. Um, but among these sort of more I want to say realistic <laughs> Marvel movies, we haven't really had just a, a cute animal mascot, and I personally found it kind of painful. I mean, he's a great cat, no, nothing against the cat himself, but how heavily the movie relied on it seemed, I don't know, just a little pandering or cutesy, and I'm not sure how much it advanced the story. What did y'all think? I felt similarly. I thought the cat was extremely cute, and I thought Samuel L. Jackson did a good job of being the innocent human who thought this was truly a cat all along. I thought the reveal of the cat actually being, what was it called? Uh, the alien. It's got a lot it was of like tentacles. A, it was like a flirkin or something like that. Uh, right. I mean, the joke is that throughout the movie, all the alien characters are like, get that thing away from me. And then eventually we see all these tentacles emerge from it, and it is, turns out to be extremely dangerous and powerful. Oh, I thought it worked for the most part. I thought that kind of goofiness they sort of relegated to the cat as opposed to I could have used a little bit more between the actual characters. I think the movie was at its strongest. I agree with John uh, when it was playing off that buddy cop, you know, 90s humor element as opposed to the oh, look, it's not a cat. It can kill you. For, for me, I, I thought the movie was at strongest when it really tried to, um, you know, temper the sort of um, 
slightly self-serious way it entered and the expectations it set up with um, something far goofier. So, you know, not only were the squirrels revealed to actually, uh, you know, have been the good guys and really this you know, persecuted minority, but the, uh, the Ben Mendelsohn character... Who's the head of the scrolls, we should say. Yeah, right. Uh, who's the head of the scrolls, uh, who impersonates a high-up shield person. You know, he's not only revealed to have to be this sympathetic character, but he's also, um, he also sort of emerges as this kind of uh, goofy, self-effacing uh, foil, I, I suppose, to the more serious uh, Captain Marvel. And, I, and, I, and for me, you know, the movie sort of emerges into this, I think the, fi- the, the, the final sort of... Um, Standoff at the end of the film, they're on this, um, they, you know, they, they make their way to this um, alien ship that's orbiting around Earth, and there's this face-off between Captain Marvel, Nick Fury, the Scrolls, and um, and uh, uh, the the Kree elite warriors. Who I suppose we, we skip this part, but they're they're basically revealed to be the bad guys. Yeah, we're gonna get back to that shift in allegiance because I think it's one of the more interesting things about the movie. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, but at this point, you know, the film it sort of like flowers into this like really silly action sequence. Where I think it's going, it's trying to be both, uh, you know, cartoonish and ridiculous and thrilling, as well as, um, I mean, they're, they're playing. I'm just a girl, so obviously it's going for you know a certain, uh, you know, some kind of girl power moment. But there's also a tesseract in a Fonzie lunchbox, which is by its very nature absurd. Right, right. But for me, at this point, it was like, oh, this is what I think. This is like what they were trying to do. Like this, this tone actually feels like a fit, um, even if it's you know. Not not too far off from from uh, what Thor was doing in, in his last movie, or what the Guardians of the Galaxy were doing in theirs. One of the reasons that's possible, though, at that point in the movie, is that Brie Larson's character finally knows who she is. And I think one of the main flaws for me, for the most of this movie, is that she has no sense of her identity. And while kind of they try to give her some wisecracking lines and some banter with Jan Rog, and and later with Nick Fury, she's just such a blank slate that it's seems almost unfair to Brie Larson because she can't really play it up and have a big personality because she doesn't know who she is. Yeah, it seems like she may come into her own as a character more in the next installment when she meets up with the other Avengers. But yeah, I agree. There's something sort of vague about who she is to even herself for most of the movie. So when she does figure out who she is, who is she? Uh, She is Carol Danvers. Uh, She's ex-Air Force. She's working for, we find out, uh, a scientist called Wendy Lawson, who is Annette Benning, who does not get enough screen time in this movie. Uh, she's in part of the movie. She's the supreme intelligence, this artificial intelligence. Uh, in the other part, we see her as this scientist who's idealistic. She hires women for her science project, and her big mission is to end wars. She's not fighting wars; she's ending wars. Which I would just notice is, is Wonder Woman like, right? I mean, uh-huh. if you skip over the DC universe, that was sort of Wonder Woman's deal too. She's like a pacifist superhero. And we find out that she had sort of her one close friend, Maria, and her daughter, Monica. That was sort of her surrogate family as an adult. And for a while, I thought this movie was hinting at a romance between Carol Danvers and Maria, but it's pretty firmly shut down. It seems like they're living together, but then there's a throwaway line where Maria says, oh, you came and knocked on my door, and it was like, oh, separate bedrooms. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think the idea, although it's established very quickly and vaguely, is that after her dad traumatized her by yelling at her at the (laughs) go-kart concession, she moved out and and lived with 
Monica, right? I'm not sure if she grew up with her or what, but the idea is that they sort of room together or something like that. Yeah, I did have a slight inkling that there might be a gay romance in it too, but no, Marvel was not willing to go there. And in fact, something that I note in my review that I think is remarkable about this movie, and I liked it, but it was certainly a deliberate choice, is that there was no romantic interest at all, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there were no romantic subplots. There were no kind of wisecracks about her looking hot in her spacesuit. It was she was a really sexless kind of character, which, you know, you could argue that that continues to make her even less of a compelling character. But at least she was not forced to have a, a male foil or, you know, some sort of flirtation. And I got, kind of thought that was a relief. I like that, especially as someone who really enjoyed Thor Ragnarok. I think Marvel's move away from forced romances and toward exploring other relationships is great mentor-mentee relationships, sibling relationships, friendships. Uh, I I think when they do romance, it can work, but I think that it they shouldn't feel a need to force it. Right. Let's hop back for a second to that shift in allegiance that Captain Marvel has and that the audience is supposed to have between the, the Skrulls and the Kree, because it's sort of one of the movie's few political moments. I mean, in general, I guess to be pacifist and trying to end wars is sort of political, but it's a very bland, you know, who would be against that, right? Um, but the one moment that there does seem to be some sort of commentary on colonialism and oppression and, you know, what it means for one group to be in generations-long war with another is this moment in the middle, maybe about halfway through, where, as you say, John, Ben Mendelsohn, the head of the Skrull, suddenly reveals himself to be a good guy, right? I mean, that essentially what the Kree and Captain Marvel have been perceiving and demonizing as this invading group that they have to crush is, in fact, a bunch of refugees who are just looking for a home. Right. I saw this movie with uh, Slate staff writer Ingu Kang, and she actually made an interesting observation as we were walking out, which is that the movie is about a white woman realizing she's a colonizer, uh, which I thought was a really interesting observation. I th- I mean, it's literally what it's about. I do think it's complicated a little bit by the character's own history. I mean, she was abducted. She was given a blood transfusion so that she would have blue Cree blood. She had her memory wiped. Um, she was convinced that she had this power and that it had been given to her rather than the truth, which is that she absorbed it in a moment of self-sacrifice. But it is, it's a really interesting concept, especially following, I think, on the heels of Black Panther, um, which was sort of one of the standout Marvel movies of late. Uh, And these issues of colonialism, space fascism, Right. Uh, invaders. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it certainly shifts the feeling of the movie midway through. I mean, if you were somebody who goes to these movies for the conflicts and the, you know, duking it out sessions at the end, you could say that it drained some conflict from the movie because suddenly these guys that we had set up as criminals and villains are are appearing sympathetic. But um, but I found that a, a winning part of the movie. Uh, I wish even that we'd known, learned a little bit more about the, the Krull culture and that group of refugees that we meet late in the movie that is essentially the family and friends of of Talos that he's trying to save. But but I, I not only buy the the um the theory that, you know, it's basically saying something about colonialism, but it's also upsetting, I think, a pretty uh, stubborn superhero trope, which is that, you know, generally superheroes in the comic books, at least, you know, the you know, the main ones who star in these movies, you know, generally they don't kill people. Um but the one group that they're allowed to kill are aliens. You know, anytime there's an alien invasion, you know, kill away. You know, that's that's what happened in the first uh, Avengers movie uh, when there was an invasion. And, you know, this movie is saying, you know, actually, you know, that, you know, kind of literally in this case, you know, faceless, you know, horde that you sort of perceive as your as 
as your, uh, you know, generational enemy, uh, you know, actually they have their own story and it's not the one that you think. And that, that's not the only trope that, that I think is upset here. But I think uh, for me, that was a very satisfying reveal, even even if it was like, you know, pretty obviously telegraphed. That's such an interesting point, John, because one of my complaints early in the movie before the reveal was the appearance of the scroll and how they're kind of like goblin orcs. I mean, I'm sure that's faithful to how they were depicted in the comics, but it was also something we're very used to seeing as the bad guys. And so the reveal later in the movie that they were not actually bad, I think, is more satisfying when you think about the fact that they are upending this trope that they went with such a classic alien villain look for the characters. I mean, I found that look endearing because there's so much high tech elsewhere in the movie, right? It's very, very expensively produced. It's not particularly good looking. I mean, I should say, as is true of a lot of Marvel movies, that it's kind of flat. You know, the color is kind of ugly. I mean, there's not really, there's not very much artful about the way this is directed. And we haven't even mentioned yet that it is actually directed by a directing team, a married couple directing team, Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden, who are an unusual choice to direct Marvel movies. I mean, they come out of the indie film world where they make much more, um, you know, aesthetically uh, pleasing and sort of politically engaged projects. But um, it was a somewhat undistinguished directing job, I thought. But something that I thought the design did really get right is the the look of the scrolls. who, as I say in my review, they could just be on Saturday afternoon TV, you know, from <laughs> 20 or 30 years ago. They really do seem like actors in suits, you know, with some green paint and bald wigs on. And of course, they could have been elaborately digitized, just like Samuel Jackson's face was. But there was something sort of sort of sweet about the fact that they were recognizably actors in suits. Yeah, they really had the look of, um, you know, villains of the week from like Star Trek or something. Yeah, a kind of a Star Trek feel, which I thought was was really nice. All right, so let's get to the end of the movie. After the the Tesseract, which is a glowing blue cube in a Fonzie lunchbox, has been fought over and obtained, finally by um, by the Captain Marvel side. Where do we leave our heroine, and what are they setting up for the next movie to come, Jonathan? I guess there's a few ways to answer this, which is, um, you know, number one, I think. Um, even though this movie is, you know, mostly a, a self-contained thing, it does connect to several strands within the existing Marvel, Marvel Cinematic Universe and possibly introduces a continuity error, too, which is – that's a hazard anytime you have a expansive shared universe. But it specifically, it sets up Brie Larson to return in Avengers Endgame, which is the sequel to uh, Avengers Infinity War, the big blockbuster from last summer. And, and and perhaps it also sets up future Captain Marvel movies. You know, but in terms of the Avengers, uh, Infinity War ended with a post-credit scene, as they all do, or in, I guess a, a mid-credit scene, also as they all do, in which present-day Nick Fury is uh, snapshot out of existence. You know, he turns to Ash, but just before he does, he uh, pulls out a pager, a pager that is also in this film, and he uh, he messages Captain Marvel. So at the end of this film, in the middle of the credits. Uh, we f- see that pager, which is now in the possession of the the Avengers who survived the last film. It seems to be transmitting something, and then suddenly it turns off. Um, and then um, Black Widow, Scarlett Johansson, uh, Hulk, several of the others, uh, they they you know they they look at it. They're like it's, something just happened. Then they turn around. Brie Larson's there. She asks, "Where's Fury?" You know, cut to black. 
Right. So we know that she is going to be the one that can help save them from Thanos, the purple villain of the last movie, who is still at large, unusually for a villain at the end of a Marvel movie. I mean, that movie really felt like a part one in a way that isn't always true of these. It was really not self-contained and was just just begging for completion. So she's obviously going to come back and save the day. I mean, one funny thing that occurred to me when they summoned her on the pager at the end was just all the times that they've saved the world over these last 21 movies, she was never summoned. So I guess <laughs> like things are really, really dire. It, it almost seems like she should have said something very forbidding to Nick Fury when she left him with the pager, like, only call me if you really, really need me. <laughs> she does, though. She says something along the lines of, you know, only for emergencies. But I mean, um, they've certainly, you could not say that the Avengers have not been through some sure, emergencies. Yeah. <laughs> well, supposedly, I mean, Captain Marvel ends with her going off to help resettle the scroll. And presumably other uh, cultures that have been subjected to Cree rule, right? I mean, she's off screen during all of the other Avengers movies in the rest of the universe where there's presumably other super right. crimes going on that need solving. And there have been basically 25 years of Earth time that will have passed, right? Presuming that the next movie takes place more or less in the present day. So maybe we'll get an account of what she was up to saving all that time. There's another post-credit sequence to this movie. Oh, yeah. Do you want to summarize that before you go? <laughs> it's not so much a summary, but we see Goose the cat, who has been revealed not a cat, coughing up the Tesseract, which was sort of funny and cute, but also probably the most predictable post-credit scene imaginable <laughs> to the point where Slate's culture editor Forrest Wickman leaned over to me during the credits and said, I bet you $10 that it's a cat <laughs> coughing up a hairball and it's the Tesseract. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. But now I'm fascinated by the physiology of the species. What happened to all the bad guys that it ate? There right. are no bones. I need more on this cat. <laughs> Is I, it going to just disgorge those guys at will some point? I believe it's a cat that contains a pocket universe. Ah, there we go. And there's another whole Marvel universe that needs to be explored. So, like, rationally, as though that is naturally the conclusion what it would come to. It it completely makes sense. That's perfect, because I was going to close by asking you, what do you foresee? I mean, this this is getting into some meta-narrative stuff, but the next movie will be the end of this 22-movie cycle that's been going on since 2008, since the first Iron Man, right? That's the MCU, the first, whatever you'd call it, like, cycle of the MCU. And characters are being set up, including Captain Marvel and Black Panther that are going to go on in this in the next universe. So um, other than taking place inside an orange tabby cat, <laughs> what do you what do you foresee for the next the post uh, 22 movie round of, of Marvel? I think that the answer involves two things. Um, number one, a more diverse set of characters along a few axes, uh, as well as uh, corporate mergers. So I guess to take the first one, clearly there will be more there will be more Black Panther films. It it made too much money for there not to be more Black Panther films. Right. He obviously is not sh- snapshored away for good. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's another Spider-Man film coming out there. The Which will be Tom Holland as well. He's staying. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's already a, a, a trailer which reveals he clearly did not die for good in the last Avengers film. I assume there'll be more Captain Marvel films. They're currently casting for a film called The Eternals, which. Um, you know, involves some other uh, characters uh, from the Marvel Universe, and I-, I believe they're casting for a gay male lead. So it-, it sounds like, you know, the next stage of the Marvel Universe is going to be, I, I think it's just going to have a more interesting texture of kinds of heroes. Um, so that's that- that's one answer. Um, I think the other answer is that actors like Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans, um, hoping, I think, to step away from the franchise... 
There will be. I, th- I think if, if the idea is to keep this shared universe going, I think there will be a need for more marquee characters. And as it happens, uh, Disney is in the process of uh, buying 21st Century Fox. And 21st Century Fox has the film rights to uh, the X-Men and the Fantastic Four um, and lots of characters within those sort of you know smaller universes. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of those, uh, some of those heroes end up rethought within this Marvel franchise. It's going to get crowded. They're going to have yeah. to set up risers in their lair to all convene together. You know, I think, you know, relative to the comic books, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, while probably confusing to like most normal people, is to a comic book fan not that confusing because, you know, comic book fans are used to uh, trying to reconcile uh, 50, 60 years of continuity. What's interesting is that now it is getting really crowded, you know, especially in addition to this, there's also a whole TV franchise of, of Marvel uh, shows. And you're starting to see things like continuity errors. I think there were a couple in this film, or at least things that... Events in this film that made events in other films not really make sense anymore, but that's okay. I guess, like, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that if if it feels rangy now, it's going to get really, really, really rangy. And I think that's that's the kind of thing that sort of makes it frustrating to be a comic book fan if you, you know, care about uh, things making sense, which which you shouldn't. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it'll be um, it'll be a mess, and if you enjoy these films, you should not get too hung up on <laughs> the mess of it. Yeah, as I was saying to Marissa, when I walked into Infinity War last year, I was thinking, this is it. I'm done with Marvel. I've written about and talked about these movies so many times. I have nothing new to bring to the conversation. This is over, and I'm out. And then they have that cliffhanger ending, and <laughs> damned if I'm not pulled back in again. Now I really want to see what they do in Endgame. Um, all right. Well, thank you guys so much for, for joining me. And uh, when Avengers Endgame does roll around very, very soon, I hope you'll come back on and talk some more Marvel. Thanks, Dana. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. You can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like our show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you would like us to spoil or other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer this week is Daniel Schrader. Producing for us in D.C. is Meg Wiegand. For Jonathan Fisher and Marissa Martinelli, I am Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.